Between 1994 and 2004, 15 women in the Baton Rouge and surrounding areas were murdered. There was not one, but two serial killers at work, but only one of them took pleasure in dismembering and mutilating their victims' corpses. So proud of his handiwork, he often photographed the victims when he was finished. But that's okay, because according to him, his victims were already dead to him before he laid one finger on them. This is the secret life of killer Sean Gillis, devoted partner by day, monster by night. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our Icelandic friends, <laughs> way up there in the cold. Yes. Velkomen, velkomen, velkomen. Oh, yeah. That's great. I've always wanted to go to Reykjavik. Oh, yeah. I want to go see the Aurora, Bo- the Aurora Borealis. That took me a couple of times to say that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh. Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. Yes. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to the podcast, too, on any platform that you're listening to. Just subscribe away. Just (laughs) everywhere you see subscribe, just hit that button. Just hit the button. (laughs) You can also join our closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws. Just want to welcome all the new family members, be it on YouTube or on on, uh, The In-Laws and Outlaws in Facebook. Go in there, answer a few questions, and you're in. You're automatically family. Yes. Welcome to the crew. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, today's case, it is a monster of a case Mm. about a monster. Okay. This is really a Jekyll and Hyde story. Like we haven't had any monsters before? Well, true. (laughs) But, you know, I think just the ones that act like they're normal. I I mean, I'm rolling my eyes right now because I don't think he's really normal either. But. He's definitely considered a Jekyll and Hyde. Before we get started, let me thank some sources. The Town Talk, The News Star, The Daily Review, Grunge.com, WAFB, Murderpedia, Radford University Department of Psychology, and World's Most Evil Killers. And he is certainly one of them. Wow. I will put a link to all those sources in the show notes. All right. Well, you ready? I am. All right, let's do it. Sean Vincent Gillis is born on June 24th, 1962 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Okay. <laughs> I had to use my Southern Cajun. Need a little cayenne pepper. I needed to say something. Yeah. Love Louisiana. We love Louisiana. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful, great. Love New Orleans. He's born in Baton Rouge to Norman Jr. and Yvonne Marie Bourgeois Gillis. Oh, wow. Yeah. His mom's last name is Bourgeois. Bourgeois. Yes. These two married in 1960. His father was an alcoholic and his father also suffered from mental illness. 
And at one point, he held a gun to Sean's head and threatened to kill him and his mother. He's three years old when this happens. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. His mother leaves with him in tow, and his father spent some time in and out of mental hospitals, as you might imagine. I also read that his father left, and they didn't leave him because he was afraid he would hurt Sean. Sean will be raised by his mother with help from his grandparents. His mom will buy a house in Cottage Hill in Baton Rouge, where Sean will live his entire life. Hmm. Have you ever known anybody to live their entire life in the same city in the same house? Mm, not, no. Well, now you have. Okay. I'm telling you about it. Congratulations, Sean. <laughs> but even with the ups and downs with his father and being raised by a single mom, you go single moms, <laughs> he had a pretty normal childhood. When he's 10, the neighbors would say that he was a little bit of a bully toward other children And when he's a teen, he showed signs of anger and rage or possibly mental illness, maybe. I know he had friends in high school and they liked horror movies and movies that involved Satan. Oh, wow. Now, Rob will watch every scary movie in the book with me. Once we cross over to devil worshiping, (laughs) Rob's out. Yeah, I just, uh, I tap out. I can't deal with it. He won't do it. Nope. He no, won't do never it. Never seen The Exorcist. Never. Yeah. And I've I've seen them all. <laughs> no, I can't do it. Later, there will be accounts that he was actually into devil worship. I don't know if that's true or not. He had a few brushes with the law for marijuana, for weed. Okay. He gets busted for weed when he's a teenager. Okay. Now, a neighbor, Carolyn Clay, sees him at 3 a.m. in his front yard beating and banging on garbage cans. This is when he's in high school. Okay. And when he's asked about it, he says that he is frustrated because he doesn't have a girlfriend. You know, if you sit in Washington Square in New York City and do that, you get paid for it. You get tips. <laughs> you do. You get tips. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Sorry. Or you they roll out the old piano that's out of tune. Yeah. I'm always like, how's this guy get how'd he get the piano here? <laughs> it's it. They're making good money. Yeah. When he's 17, Sean will actually hear from his father for the first time since he and his mom walked away. Yvonne did allow Sean to visit with Norman's parents, and he had a really good relationship with them. He will graduate from Redemptorist High School mm. in 1980. It's a Catholic school. I was going to say, it's got to be a Catholic school. Well, and I actually read that his uncle, his mother's brother, is a priest. Hmm, Okay. Yeah. Okay. Father Bourgeois. (laughs) Forgive me, Father Bourgeois. It sounds very bougie, right? When I saw Bourgeois, I was like, ooh, bougie Bourgeois. Yeah. Yeah. When Sean is 18, he sees these disturbing photos that belong to his dad. They were of naked men in various sexual positions. Mm. And Sean found out that his dad was a homosexual. And this horrified Sean a lot. Hmm. Now, maybe this is because of his Catholic upbringing. Don't know. Right. Now, Norman called Yvonne and Sean a few weeks later to come visit him at his new home in California, but they refused to visit him, and Sean was never able to deal with what he had seen in those photographs that belonged to his dad. Okay. Sean's mother, Yvonne, worked in a department store in Baton Rouge, and she also worked for Channel 2, a TV station Mm. that's based in Baton Rouge. Yvonne doted on Sean. She liked to spoil him. She thought he was the best baby and the best kiddo in the world. Don't all moms think this? I mean, yeah. That's that's your job. Unless they're talking back. (laughs) Then they're not your favorite person. Then then they're dad's kid. (laughs) Yeah. 
Honey, come get your son. Yeah, exactly. I don't know who he belongs to, but it's not me. True. She thinks he's really smart. Yvonne thinks her son is just brilliant, but his teachers would say that he's just average. And I think Yvonne overcompensated because of the sick person that Sean's dad was. But he has, I think, an unhealthy attachment to his mother. Okay. I already told you that he likes to smoke weed and got in trouble for it a little bit. Right. He does this with his friends. But what's really interesting is that the neighbors said Sean would also go out, not just beating trash cans, but he would go out and howl at the moon, literally howl at the moon. Okay. Which is strange unless you're in Teen Wolf 2. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Unless you're Michael J. Fox. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. yeah. And it's in the 80s. It's perfect timing. Wow. Sean is very preoccupied with his mom. He had no girlfriends throughout high school and his early 20s. Okay. He worked for Southland Corporation, which owned the 7-Eleven chain of convenience stores. And he switched jobs a lot. He didn't really like to work. I don't think he knew how to be a normal guy or what normal guys would say or how they behaved around people. Right. He doesn't people well. He wasn't socially adjusted. He's not. And I will I will go out if it's like before a big holiday and I have to go to the grocery or something. I always come back and tell Rob, I just don't people well anymore. <laughs> There's too many of them. It's like the Hunger Games. I can't do it. Why do you think I sit down here in the studio 24 hours a day? <laughs> Why is Rob a writer of music and I'm a writer of words? Because we like our, our time alone. Yeah. He doesn't just, it's not just around the holidays. He just can't people at all. Right. He's super awkward with women. He was not a tall guy. Sean was this little guy with blue eyes and glasses. And as he gets older, I'm just going to say it now, he wears glasses like Jeffrey Dahmer. Only Sean is going to grow himself a fat stash, better known as the walrus. Oh, I was going to say a porn stash. (laughs) Well, no, it's not a porn stash. It's called the walrus. Oh, really? I don't know. Is that like a, it's like a big fat mustache. Oh, okay. So like uh, Andy Reid from the Kansas City Chiefs, he's the coach for them. Like his stash. Is it a big walrus-looking oh, yeah. stash? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Oh, I know exactly who you're <laughs> or talking Wilford about. Or Wilford Brimley. Yes, it's Wilford Brimley. Who looks Brimley. like Andy Reid. <laughs> if Wilford Brimley was a serial killer and 25 years old. Okay. And he wears glasses like um, Dahmer. Dahmer. There you have it. Okay. I've painted the picture for you. Now that we've got that out of the way, we can continue. <laughs> yes, sorry about that. <laughs> Sean, he's a bit of a geek, and he was more interested in Captain Kirk and Nintendo and computers. That's right. Sean spent the majority of his day on his personal computer, which at the time was just a lunk of a screen and a big old hard drive box. If you're old like me, that's exactly what you had. An AOL. Yeah, and horrible (laughs) dial-up. He's going to test the dial-up, I promise you. Not long after the personal computer got hot, you had to know that porn was going to take its piece of the pie online. And it did. I think pornography was really, really quick to the Internet. Oh, yeah. 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 And Sean was obsessed with online porn. So he didn't have a porn stash, but he's really into pornography. Okay. 
And, you know, think about it. No more are the embarrassed days of going into the back room of a video store. Now you have porn on your computer 24-7. You didn't have to hide the magazines under your mattress. Exactly. And nobody (laughs) had to know what you were doing. Is that where you hid your magazines, Rob? (laughs) In all transparency, I never had a porn magazine. Well, in all transparency, I did go to that back room one time for a bachelorette party. I've regretted it for the rest of my life (laughs) because I had to stand there and look at the video store guy and hand it to him to check it out under my card. It's just nasty. Yeah. And then when I got to the bachelorette party, I was like, you guys owe me for the rest of your lives. (laughs) Don't ever make me do that again. Don't ever put me in charge. (laughs) I'll do anything. Not this. Don't give me this job. I get the cookies the next time. Yeah. Okay. But Sean liked videos that were just a little bit worse than just run-of-the-mill porn. Mm. He liked videos and photos that depicted rape, Mm. murder, and dismemberment of women. Wow. And in fact, he's so interested in computers that he went to community college and got a certificate in IT. Okay. Which this gives his mom hope that he's found something that he likes that he can possibly make a career out of. She doesn't. She just doesn't know what he's doing online. She's just not aware of the ulterior motives that he's got. Yeah, Yeah. she's just not, she's not aware of how that's all going to unfold. Oh boy. In 1992, when Sean is 30, his mother moves to Atlanta, Georgia, when she's offered a better job. And Sean did not want to go with her. She's like, pack your stuff, Sean. Come with me. I think she actually moves to Marietta, Georgia. Okay. And I mean, this he's a 30-year-old man, for yeah. goodness sake. Yeah. But after his mother leaves, Sean is seen on more than one occasion yelling and screaming at the sky, cursing his mother for leaving him. Wow. She wanted him to come, but he refuses. And Sean is actually of the mindset that if I pitch a hissy fit, she won't go. (laughs) He's a 30-year-old man. So remember how I said he has a little bit of an odd attachment to his mom? That's beyond odd. Yeah. Yeah. But he's out in the front. He's cursing the heavens a lot with the trash cans because he doesn't get a girlfriend. Then he's out there screaming, you know, howling at the moon. And now he's out cursing the world because his mom leaves him. You know, most people just scream into their pillow and leave it at that. (laughs) This guy's taking it to a whole new level. Oh, he's going to take everything to a whole new level. Sean's mom, Yvonne, actually sends him money. And she pays the mortgage on the house while her 30-year-old son, who really doesn't like to work, sits online and watches behind the green door. Wow. <laughs> and that, folks, is called enabling. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, when our son, he he came back home for a little bit because he was going after his MBA. and uh, It was also during COVID. Yeah, it was during COVID. So we were like, yeah, please come home, you know, finish your, your MBA and blah, blah, blah. The minute he graduated, we're like, okay, when you leaving? Okay, when you moving out? No, I'm just kidding. Well, when I read this, I was like, it's like wedding crashers. Mom, <laughs> yeah. the meatloaf. <laughs> it is. Once again, Will Ferrell. Yeah. It, what's his name? His name is Chaz, Chaz. or something like that yes, in that Chaz. movie. Mom, the meatloaf. <laughs> what is she doing back there? What huh? is she doing back? What does she do back there? That's Sean, basically. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. He's finally on his own. He's navigating without his mother, taking care of him, and he feels like he's been abandoned. Mm. So what do you do when you're tired of watching online porn? Well, he's caught at one point looking in the window of a neighbor. Oh, wow. Sean's a peeping Tom. And when he's caught, he tells the police that he's looking for... 
his missing cat. <laughs> okay. Here, here, kitty, 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 uh, kitty. We don't have cats. What's that thing they do? Psst, psst, psst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two years after his mom moves away, she is still paying the mortgage on the home, and she's still sending Sean money. Good grief. It's 1994, and Hurricane Andrew had blown through two years earlier in 1992 and had left their house, the house he's living in, mm-hmm. with so much needed repairs. Okay. At 32 years old, Sean didn't work. He still loved his Nintendo, his computer, his porn, and his Star Trek. I, I wrote in here, he gives Star Trek a bad name because <laughs> I'm a huge Trekkie. Beam me up, Scotty. Yep. Wow. In 1994, Sean meets Terry Lemoyne. Terry works the overnight shift at a convenience store. She's introduced by a mutual friend when said friend and Sean come into the store late one night. Now, Sean likes Terry, and he stays in the convenience store for hours that night just talking to Terry. He's schmitten. Yeah, I mean, I think he is, but also I think she pays attention to him, and he's just never had that with girls. Right. So he spends hours there talking to Terry, something he's never done before, talked to a girl for hours on end, and they realize they have lots in common. They like a lot of the same movies and books. Okay. And Terry hasn't had the easiest of lives. In 1986, she got pregnant by her then boyfriend. She gives up the little girl for adoption. Her name is Christine. And I don't know if this was an open adoption or not, because Terry is a part of her daughter's life Hmm. for sure. Okay. Something else about Terry is that she's an epileptic, Mm -hmm. and she's had really bad luck with men, and she had trust issues. So when she meets Sean, this small, mild-mannered nerd, she thinks he's harmless, (laughs) and they begin dating. But because Terry isn't trusting of men, when these two get into an argument early on in their relationship, Terry actually slaps him in the face. Oh, wow. Sean did not hit her back. But he began crying. She wanted to see if he was going to be abusive to her. Really? Yeah. That's what she wanted to see. Wow. So she had a little test. She started a fight. And then she yelled at him. He yelled back. And then she smacked him in the chops. And he started to cry. Wow. He ran back to the bedroom and started crying. Oh, man. After that, Terry apologized. And they promised there would be no violence in their relationship. Okay. So... You and I have never really had a fight. That's true. Some people don't believe this, but we haven't. We haven't. We're, That's because we're old and <laughs> there's nothing worth fighting about <laughs> exactly. at this point. Exactly. Really not. But if you did slap me and I started crying, what would be your reaction? Um, <laughs> you know what I would say. I have a standard saying for things like this. Do you know what it is? No. Get your balls out of your purse. Yeah. Get your balls out of your purse. I say that to women, too. If you're being timid and you can't just go for something and be confident in yourself, it's time to get your balls out of your purse. There it is. (laughs) And that's probably what I would say. I'd be like, what is going on? Yeah, wow. you would never do that. Yeah. I would never hit you. No, I know. I'm not, yeah. And I would That's never just cry. not us. And you would never cry. <laughs> I may stand there in shock and disbelief, but I would never cry. <laughs> true, true, yeah. The convenience store where Terry works is walking distance from Sean's home, and he comes to visit her all the time. Another place that's walking distance from Sean's house, the St. James Place Retirement Community. Okay. March 21st, 1994, 
Sean walks to the St. James Retirement Center and he is watching through the window because remember, he's the peeping Tom looking for his cat. (laughs) He's watching 82-year-old Ann Bryan through the window. What? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sean. Mm -hmm. Go back to your porn. Mm. She takes a bath. He watches her. She takes a bath. She puts on her nightgown and she lays down on her bed. And Sean watches the whole thing. Wow. And then he walked right into the retirement home because the security is lacking to say the least in this place. What year was this? 1994. Wow, yeah, it should have been security. And Rob and I have both had loved ones who've been in retirement centers or nursing homes. It's like getting into Fort Knox. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you don't get past that front desk. No. Well, apparently in 1994, he could just saunter right in. Stroll in and check them out. That's what he did. Miss Anne always left the door to her room cracked just a little bit at night when she went to bed. And she did this in case the nurse would need to come in to bring her medication or help her if she needed it. She's 82. Sure. From the open door, Sean walks the hallway. The very first door he comes to, it's Miss Anne Bryant's Mm -hmm. room. Sean decides in this moment that he is going to rape Anne. But he touches her and she wakes up and she starts screaming. Yeah. So Sean immediately cuts her throat. What? To get her to stop screaming. But he didn't just kill her. He destroyed her. After he slices her throat open, he stabs Miss Anne 47 times. Oh, my God. He cuts her breast, and he also cuts her torso. She has wounds all over her little body. It was brutal. It was bloody. Mm. And he really kind of surprised himself, you know, what he was actually capable of doing. Right. Quote, I just wanted her to be quiet. It was not what I was there for. And that's when I cut her breast and cut open her midsection, end quote. Wow. When Anne's body is discovered, everybody's shocked. Why would anyone want to murder and carve up an 82-year-old woman? There was no connection between Anne and Sean. St. James Place was just close. It was handy. Anne was an artist and a musician who enjoyed playing bridge with her friends at St. James Place. She was on his path. She was just in the way. But Sean wouldn't kill again for five years. Wow. Meanwhile, Terry and Sean's relationship is going great, with the exception of their sex life. Okay. These two don't really have a sex life. And over the course of 10 years, which is how long they're going to be together, they will only have sex a handful of times. Like, you can count them on five fingers. (laughs) Yeah. Over 10 years. That's sex once every other year. Wow. But their relationship seems to be enough for Terry. So much so that she introduces Sean to her daughter, Christine. And her daughter liked him because, you know, Sean's basically a child, too. He's a kid himself. Yeah. Yeah. But he's really sweet to Terry. He calls her Honey Bunny and Sweetie. (laughs) Honey Bunny reminds me of Pulp Fiction. (laughs) (laughs) That's his nickname. Hold that thought because that little moniker is going to come back up again. Wow. A year after they've been dating, Sean tells Terry he wants them to move in together. Interestingly enough, she tells him she's not moving in with him until she sees his house. 
Because in the year that these two have been dating, Terry sees a red flag because Sean will never allow her to come to his house. In a whole year? In a whole year. They always stay at Terry's place. They spend time at Terry's apartment. Hmm. And I would be thinking, he's got a body in the freezer or something. Something to hide. That's a huge red flag. Like Eddie Murphy in Coming to America when he takes the girl to his like really decrepit apartment there in New York yeah. City. And he opens it up and uh, Arsenio Hall's there and he's got a jacuzzi and the whole thing. And he slams the door and he says, uh, you cannot come in. There, there's a big rat. <laughs> well, there probably actually are rats yeah. at Sean's place. Yeah, I'm sure there is. Because he finally gives in and Sean shows her the house. And she realizes in the three years after Hurricane Andrew hit, Sean has done nothing to repair the house. Oh, it's got to stink. Or I should say repair his mother's house. Yeah, that place has got to stink too. Well, I think it's just, it, you know, it's falling apart. Yeah. But Terry doesn't see this house as horrible. She sees it as a home, a place where she can paint and redecorate. And she thinks she can make this house that his mother is still paying for <laughs> a home for the two of them. Okay. So she agrees to live with Sean, but she has one other condition. She wants him to grow up, to be a man, and to get a job, and to stop relying on his mother for money. And to get his balls out of his to purse. Get, she's basically <laughs> saying, Sean, get your balls out of your purse. Yeah. yeah. So Terry gets him a job at the convenience store where she works. And the owner slash manager is less than impressed with Sean's work ethic. He's eventually fired. He only lasts three weeks. Oh, wow. And the manager who really likes Terry, because Terry does the overnights, right. she thinks she's making a very bad decision by being involved with Sean. Yeah. You know how some people can see things from the outside mm. and you're just not capable of it? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. But Terry thought Sean was smart. Really, really smart. He just didn't people well. He couldn't people. Wow. He didn't like talking to strangers. And if you're going to work at a convenience store or you're going to work in retail or you're going to work in any service industry, you have to talk to people. Yeah. In 1996, Terry and Sean move into the house. Terry thinks that Sean is safe and comfortable, someone she could easily consider just her friend, let alone her boyfriend. And she also realizes pretty quickly that Sean is addicted to online porn. Mm-hmm. But she really doesn't know how horrible the stuff is that he's watching because he's moved on to the dark web. Starting back when Sean is 17, he gets into trouble with the law. It was always something minor, but still, Sean's on the radar of the police department. Police know who Sean Gillis is. He's brought in for possession of weed, traffic citations, DUIs, and contempt of court. Now, none of these things makes him a stand-up guy, but they don't make him a serial killer either. And Terry gets a summons in the mail. She sees a summons in the mail because he's been caught with weed Mm -hmm. and he's had a DUI and she didn't know these things. But Terry is so in love with Sean. He never yelled at her. And to her, he was, quote, the kind of person you could leave your kids with, end quote. Well, and I'm sure a lot of this had to do with the fact that his that her daughter absolutely adored him. So that that was the connection for her. I think that's true. I also think he's he's tiny. He's a tiny. The biggest thing on this guy is his mustache. Yeah, wow. And his gla- and his Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. <laughs> yeah. Wow. He's coming across as very trustworthy, and he tries to be the perfect boyfriend. He wants Terry's approval, 
So perhaps he's replaced his mother with Terry. And she's got that maternal instinct. She really does. She does. Now, in the first few years of their relationship, Terry notices Sean is always on his computer. He would wake up in the morning on the computer. He would stay up late at night on the computer. Terry would go to bed alone and Sean would be on the computer. Yeah. The past five years between Sean and Terry have been wonderful, according to Terry. But for Sean, while Terry is working the night shift, he's left on his own. So he's unsupervised. And this gives Sean an opportunity to make some of the things going on in his head real. Wow. Sean begins practicing being a serial rapist and killer. He buys industrial zip ties and he practices with them, looping them around a human head and tightening them quickly. Good Lord. He learned from 82-year-old Ann Bryan that he had to silence them first. He has to silence them quickly and he had to be efficient. So he became proficient with the zip ties. And when he is, he's ready to kill again. Wow. When 1999 rolls around, Terry's a little perturbed. Because Sean won't go to work, and he won't work around the house. And she's thinking, what the hell, man? I'm working my ass off during the night shift, and you're not doing anything but drinking, drugs, smoking weed, and watching porn. And she's got to know at this point that his mom is paying for the mortgage. Oh, she's known this all along. Remember? You know, months back, she said. That's right. Yeah. I'll move in, but you got, yeah. But she set that boundary, and she never stuck to it. Wow. On January 4th, 1999, 30-year-old sex worker Catherine Hall is working the streets in North Baton Rouge. Sean pulls up beside her and offers her money. He wants her to perform oral sex on him. She gets into Sean's beat-up van, and he drives her to River Road. It's a deserted area. Never get into a van. No. He quickly loops a zip tie around her neck, and Catherine realizes what's happening, and she fights him. She even gets out of the car and starts to run away, but Sean catches her, and when he does, he pulls the zip tie tighter, and he stabs her 16 times Mm. until she's dead. Wow. Then, when Catherine is dead, he stabs her another 21 times, mutilating her corpse, and then he raped her dead body. Jeez. Sean puts her back in the van and drives with her to the car wash, the splash car wash on Gardier Lane. And he put her dead body on the ground while he cleaned out his van. What? Yep. Wasn't anyone around? It's the middle of the night. Uh. Then he drove her to Ascension Parish, leaving her on a road in Vinya Lake Subdivision under a dead end sign. Jeez. Along with cutting her body to the bone and in pieces, he also removed Catherine's eyelids. Well, okay. Yeah. Wow. That's right. He goes from zero to 90. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Eyelids. Took her eyelids. That's random. It's because he, I think he wanted to make a statement. He poses her body under this dead end sign. And if he takes her eyelids, her eyes are going to be open when they find her. Jeez. That's what I think. Wow. Because there isn't a lot of blood, it's pretty evident that for the killer, it wasn't really the kill that was thrilling. He was strangling them with the zip tie so that he could get to the part that was thrilling for him, which is 
her dead body. Jeez. Quote, I don't know if you've ever seen a person just freshly cut open or something. The bone is just beautiful, like a pearl. Wow. End quote. Whoa. Yeah. That's, that's next level. Sean is a true necrophile. The dead body is the thrill. That's the goal. That's the kink that gets him off, mm. is the dead body. Wow. Four months later, Sean sees 52-year-old Hardy Mosley Schmidt jogging in Baton Rouge. Hardy is a well-to-do mother of three. She's married to a local attorney, Bob Schmidt, and she's from a prominent Baton Rouge family. Her father was a judge mm. in Baton Rouge. Wow. Every morning, she ran through her neighborhood, Pollard Estates. And Hardy is a serious runner. She actually ran the Boston Marathon. Sean sees her and begins to stalk her. He watches her for three weeks before deciding to make her his next victim. She was. On the morning of May 30th, 1999, Sean sees her right on time. She's out for her morning jog. First, he hits her with his car on Quail Run Drive, Mm. which knocked her into a ditch on the side of the road. Then he placed a zip tie around her neck. He tightens it, but he doesn't cut off the air supply. He puts her in the back of the car and takes her to an isolated place in the Highland Road area where he can rape her and murder her. When he's finished with Hardy, he puts her lifeless body in the van and he goes to pick up Terry from work at the convenience store. With the body in the van? Yep, he's got her covered up. It's the morning, and she's worked the night shift like she always does, and Terry's epilepsy has gotten so bad that she can no longer drive a car, and she relies on Sean to drive her and pick her up. Okay. So he's he's come to pick her up. Right. And when he picks her up, Terry complains because it smells so bad in the car, and Sean tells Terry that he's hit and killed a dog, and that must be what the smell is. <laughs> At least he didn't say it was his kitty. Yeah, well, he only looks for the kitty in the windows, so. Yeah, but the smell is a dead body. Wow. Sean keeps Hardy's body for two days before dumping her in St. James Parish near a bayou on Highway 61. What was the purpose of keeping the body? Because he likes the dead body. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about the kill. It's about the dead body. She'll be found on June 1st, two days after the murder. Quote, that day, there was just something about the bounce of her hair or something. Something as simple as that. I was just in the zone, end quote. Mm. Yeah. Wow. November 12th, 1999, Sean's fourth victim is 36-year-old Joyce Williams. Joyce is a drug addict who had turned to sex work in order to feed her habit. Mm. That night, November 12th, she gets into Sean's car. They're driving and listening to music and singing. And she says, quote, if I was with anyone else, I'd be nervous right now, end quote. Yeah, she's definitely not a good judge of character. And Sean is thinking, you have no idea. Yep. He drives to a remote area in West Baton Rouge, stopping by a sugarcane field, a place that apparently is very soundproof. All right. He takes her out into the field where he zip ties her neck, strangling her. Then he puts her back in the vehicle and takes her home. Sean thinks that Joyce has beautiful legs. He is obsessed with her legs. Hmm. So he removed them using a knife and a hacksaw to dismember Joyce. Oh, man. And then he becomes a cannibal. 
He wants to see what she tastes like. So he removes her nipple and he eats it. Then Sean does something that he never does. He cleans up the kitchen and the house to get rid of the blood. He even pulls up the baseboards in the kitchen. He puts Joyce's body parts into black trash bags and a Xerox box and puts them back in his vehicle. Wow. When Terry comes home that night, she is so thrilled because the man that she loves has cleaned the entire house. He's finally growing up. Yeah. Wow. The kitchen was spotless. She was just so grateful. And she thought it meant that Sean really cared about her. Mm. Listen, I, I, I'd like to do the dishes and put them in the dishwasher and take them out and put them away. But that's because I love you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> wow. After dropping Terry off at home so she can go to bed, remember she works the night shift, Sean drives what's left of Joyce to an Iberville Parish levee where he dumps her remains. Mm. Joyce Williams loved to sing and dance, and she attended Southern University for two years. January 2000, Sean picks up 51-year-old Lillian Gorham Robison in North Baton Rouge. He did not have enough time to mutilate her because Terry was getting off of work too soon. (laughs) But instead, he played with her dead body and put his penis into her mouth. Mm. He strangles her with a zip tie and brings her home just like he had done with Joyce. And when he's finished with Lillian, Sean drove her to the Atchafalaya Basin and dumped her in the swampy water. She won't be found for three months. And when she is, she's nine miles away from where he dumped her body. Ten months later in October 2000, Sean's out driving around, doesn't have a plan to kill on this night, but he can't help himself. 38-year-old Maryland Nevels is in his path. Okay. Sean was on his way to visit Terry's daughter, Christine. He picks Marilyn up in Lafayette, and when she got into his car, he reached for a zip tie. Quote, that's the only one I had to get physical with. She broke away and was running across the lot, and there was a car coming, and I was like, well, whatever. I can grab you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There was a piece of pipe laying on the ground. Not even pipe. It was a steel rod, kind of like rebar, but smoother. I just picked it up and smack, smack, smack until she quit fighting, end quote. He chased her across a field on 6th Street, hit her, and then he pulled the zip tie tight around her neck. Then he takes Marilyn with him again to a car wash and lays her on the ground while he cleans his car before bringing her home. Sean took a shower with this corpse before taking her to River Road and leaving her body on top of a levee. She would be found by a man walking in the woods. After he murders Marilyn Nevels, Sean stops killing for a while. Three years. Wow. The reason why? Well, there's another serial killer who's out murdering in Baton Rouge. Derek Todd Lee. He's stealing his thunder. He is. Derek Todd Lee was getting a ton of press, and I think Sean didn't want anyone to take credit for his work. Wow. Derek Todd Lee went after women in their homes. So different than Sean's murders, Sean keeps a detailed file on his computer about Derek Todd Lee's victims and murders. It's called DTL. Mm. In July of 2002, Terry buys Sean a new car to replace his junky old van. It's a used white Cavalier that needs new tires. So she has them put on. Goodyear Aquatread 3s. I'm I'm guessing this is important information. That's called foreshadowing. (laughs) I was getting to it. Then on May 27th, 2003, Derek Todd Lee is captured. 
And Sean thinks it's time to start killing again. Yeah. yeah. I'm back up to bat. Yeah. By October 2003, Sean is back on the prowl. 45-year-old Johnny Mae Williams is actually a friend of Sean's, and these two liked each other. He met her years before when she cleaned his house for him. And these two liked to party together and smoke weed together. And Sean had even spent a Thanksgiving holiday with Johnny Mae and her family. She had three children, and she loved to bake. Hmm. Sean picked her up in North Baton Rouge on October 9th, 2003. Okay. Quote, It was more of a buddyship, a mutual codependency. She depended on me for money to get her drug of choice, and I depended on her while she was at it to pick up mine. I genuinely liked her, and it seemed like the feeling was mutual, end quote. These two drive around and talk for a while. Then Sean drove her to a secluded area behind Mason's Grill, which is a popular restaurant in Baton Rouge. There's a secluded field with woods around it. When he gets her to the field, he beats her, he stabs her, and he mutilates her body. Mm. Then he cuts off her hands. What? And he, yes, cuts off her hands. Don't know why. He likes cutting off body parts. Then he puts her into his trunk and drives her to Pride Port, Hudson Road in Zachary, where he positioned her body in a wooded area. Before he leaves, he takes pictures of his handiwork. Sean has found yet another hobby besides internet porn and murder. It's photography. And it's called incriminating evidence. It it is, exactly. Quote, To this day, all the faces haunt me, but hers haunts me the most. I kissed her and closed her eyes. End quote. Wow. Johnny May's body is found on October 11th, 2003 by a person who's riding their ATV. Terry is seeing more and more red flags about this meek and mild man she loves because he shows her disgusting websites on the dark web, photos of murder victims. He likes it and he wants Terry to share in his enthusiasm for these dark websites. She does not. You think? Yeah. Four months later, in February of 2004, 43-year-old Donna Bennett Johnston is a sex worker and an addict. She's also a mother to five children. Sean picks Donna up at the corner of Geronimo and Prescott in North Baton Rouge. He takes her to a secluded spot near the scenic highway. She passes out in his car because she's drunk. She's really drunk. Quote, Miss Donna was the only true successful go-out-for-hunt to where I successfully started with a goal, then captured and killed. I noticed she was very drunk, and we're talking drunk-drunk. You could literally smell the alcohol outside the car. I didn't need to get stealthy with the zip tie, so I casually picked it up and stuck it around her neck and pulled her head forward and dropped it. She still didn't wake up, and then whack! She woke up, Mm. end quote, meaning he pulled the zip tie tight. She jumped from the car, but he caught her when she got to a fence. It was like a dead end. Sean rapes and beats Donna and kills her. He cuts off her arm and then he sees a tattoo on her thigh and he wants it. He cuts it out of the skin. Then he poses Donna and takes photos. Then he puts Donna's lifeless body into the trunk and drives to Parkway Drive, where he opens the trunk and keeps taking photographs of her. Forty-five of them. Here on Parkway Drive, he dismembers Donna and cannibalized her. He wraps her arm in a bloody towel and throws it in a ditch. 
He shuts the trunk and drives off, throwing the piece of skin with the tattoo out the window. Then Sean tosses her body parts out of the car, but first stomped on her back before he left her parts to be found on Ben-Hur Road, just blocks from the house that Sean and Terry live in, his mom's house. But before he leaves the area where he's dumped Donna's body, his car, the car Terry bought for him to drive and pick her up from work, he leaves tire marks in the mud at the scene. There's the tires. There's the tires. Donna's body will be found by two people walking their dog. Now, can you imagine if we were out walking Scotty and we happened upon a dead body? Yeah, yeah. When we are at the beach, I always say to Rob, as we're walking in the oceans, you know, Rob's like, it's so nice out. I'm like, if I was writing this, this is where a dead body would wash up on the shore. He's like, honey, you're on vacation. Welcome to my life. You're on vacation. (laughs) But these two people are out walking their dog. And at first they think it's a mannequin. You know, we hear this in more than one case that people see a body and their their mind just can't grasp right. the fact that it's a dead body. Well, how would you? I mean, I know. So you automatically think it's a mannequin. Yeah. It's not. It's Donna Bennett Johnston. When he's not murdering, raping and cannibalizing his female victims, he's still driving and picking up Terry each day that she works. But he's late a lot. Hmm. He tells her that he likes to take long drives at night in the new car. And Terry starts writing down the mileage each day. And sometimes he would put 100 miles on the car in a day. Wow. He's out stalking and looking. But Terry thinks he's driving around and photographing things because that's his new hobby. Well, he is. He is, but. (laughs) It's just dead bodies. It's not what she thinks. No. Yeah. Then Terry is let go from her job at the convenience store. She worked her way up to a manager of this store, but her epileptic seizures are getting worse. And on two different occasions, she's found on the floor, seizing by customers who've come into the store. And now she's home, even more with Sean. On February 26, 2004, Donna Bennett Johnson's body is found. Now, Donna had been an informant for the police for years, and the police knew who she was. And they're in shock when they find her body and see what this killer has done to her. The police have been collecting DNA evidence of all these bodies, and they've found the killer's DNA on Donna Johnston. And they match the DNA evidence that the police have with that of Catherine Hall and Johnny Mae Williams. Mm. So they know all three of these are killed by the same person. They got a serial killer on their hands. They do. I even wrote, it's at this point the Baton Rouge police are thinking, damn, we just put one serial killer away. And now we have ourselves another. another Just got Derek Toddley off the streets. And now this clown comes along. Yeah. In March of 2004, a task force is formed. They go through all the cases to figure out who they are looking for. They're profiling Sean as a killer. And when they process the crime scene of Donna Johnston, they see this tire imprint that we've talked about that's been left at the scene. And police make a cast of it. And then they take it to a tire store and say, can you tell us what kind of tire this is? And they were like, yeah, of course. Yeah, the guys down at the tire shop say, yep. It's a Goodyear Aquatread 3. Mm. Interestingly enough, only 90 of these tires have been sold in Louisiana. So police look at everybody who bought these tires. And this is how they start to follow a trail right to the door of Sean Gillis. 
On March 13, 2004, police matched the DNA from hairs of Johnny Mae Williams and Catherine Hall and skin under the fingernails of Donna Johnston. All three are the same person, a white man. That's what it's showing. Okay. April 29, 2004, Terry learns that the police want Sean to come down to the police station to be interviewed. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. They're just going through those tire owners. Okay. So they show up at the house. And Sean agrees to go in for questioning. When police first lay eyes on him, they think, no way. <laughs> this, l- this little pipsqueak <laughs> with the walrus stash right. and the Jeffrey Dahmer glasses <laughs> is a killer. I can't wait to see what this guy looks like. I mean, I have described him to you perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> They're hauling him in anyway, even though he just looks like a pipsqueak. Mm -hmm. But first, before he goes, he wants to have a cigarette in the driveway before he gets into the police car. They're actually picking him up and taking him. Okay. Okay. All right. The police are just making small talk while they're standing in the driveway and Sean's smoking. And when he finishes, he drops his cigarette butt and puts it out with his foot and says, quote, let's go get this shit over with, end quote. Wow, really? Yes, and Detective Todd Morris is thinking, oh, <laughs> we got our guy. Yeah. This is him. Yeah. Wow. Also, before he goes, he tells Terry, you know, this, uh, this is where I'm going. I'm going with the guys, you know, in case I'm not back tonight. Oh. And the police also think that's Hinky. Yeah. When Sean gets to the police station, he voluntarily gives them his DNA via swab. Right. They question him about the tire tracks at the Donna Bennett Johnston scene. Mm -hmm. He tells the cops that, sure, the tire tracks belong to his car, but he'd stop there to take a whiz. (laughs) Quote, I did my business, shook, looked, and got back in the car, end quote. (laughs) He had to stop in that location to pee. And Sean tells police that, well, he's on his way home when he has to stop to go to the bathroom. And his house is really close by. So why did you drop trowel on the side of the road exactly. if you could just drive home? Yeah. <laughs> Quote, it's just one of those things. My bladder was just like, uh, 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 end quote. <laughs> and that's exactly how he says it. <laughs> uh, Sean. Wow. Wow. Sean tells the police that there were too many red lights between where he was and his home for him not to stop, drop trowel, and go on the side of the road. That's the best he could come up That's with. That's the best he could come up yeah. with. And then when police point blank ask him if he knows why they're talking to him, and Sean says, because you have some type of tracks that possibly came from my car. And the detective says, quote, from those tracks, it appears she, meaning Donna Bennett Johnston, right was unloaded from that vehicle and thrown into that canal, end quote. Mm. And Sean replies, quote, she wasn't unloaded from my vehicle, end quote. (laughs) They take Sean back home, but they put surveillance on his house. They're watching him. They're watching him like a hawk. And they've towed his white Chevy Cavalier to the state police crime lab. Uh They're going to run some tests on his car. Things aren't looking good for Sean. And they're waiting on the DNA results from the lab. And when Sean gets home, he turns off his computer and he watches TV that night with Terry, something he never did. He waits on Terry hand and foot that night. Can I get you anything, honey bunny? (laughs) Do you want more chips? Is it okay if we watch this movie? Then these two go to bed that night 
at the same time, which also never happened. And all of this while they're waiting for these DNA results. And it's like, it's a match with Catherine Hall, Johnny Mae Williams, and Donna Bennett Johnston. Right, right. And when Terry and Sean lay their little heads down on the pillows that night, all hell breaks loose. The police break down the front door. They throw smoke bombs Whoa. in. They clear the house by breaking down each door inside the house, looking for, I don't know what, yeah. maybe bodies. Right. They handcuff Sean and Terry and take them out into the front yard. Jeez. And Terry is asking over and over, what's happening? Why are you doing this? Why do you have me handcuffed? And police tell Terry that they're there to arrest a serial killer. Quote, didn't you know you've been living with a serial killer? End quote. (laughs) How would you like to get that news? And I can't even imagine. But here's the thing. Terry laughs in their faces. Sean is her tiny little boyfriend (laughs) who doesn't even talk to people. He never gets mad. He's just a little geek who likes his computer. And Terry tells the police, quote, boy, have you got the wrong house, end quote. (laughs) Sean is taken back to police headquarters and Terry goes too. When they interrogate him again, a detective asks Sean, quote, how did this come to be, end quote. And Sean says, quote, does the word monster come to mind, end quote. He said that? He said that. They ask him if he's discussed any of this with his wife. She's his common-law wife at this point, meaning Terry, because she's been with him for 10 years. 10 years! And she doesn't know a thing. Wow. Yeah, and Sean tells the police, no, Terry has no idea. When Terry is allowed to see Sean, she point-blank asks him, did you do the things they are saying that you did? And Sean hangs his head and shrugs his shoulders and says, quote, yeah, honey bunny, I did all that, end quote. Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. Terry turned around. She walked away. It's then that she realizes the smells in the cars, the cleaning of the kitchen. It was never for her. It was always to cover up his murder scenes. Crazy. She was. How How do you wrap your head around that? I think she really had a hard time because she's a nice person. I've seen interviews with her. She's a good lady. But now that he's been caught, Sean really wants to tell his story in great detail. He wanted the police and the FBI to hear every horrible part. It's like he's proud of it all. But he does say, quote, I doubt I'll be as interesting as Charlie Manson, end quote. Wow. So he was just looking for fame, too. He's, he's very proud of everything that he's done. Sean explains that he used his charm and money. So I don't know where the charm comes <laughs> from, but the money's from his mom yeah. to lure the sex workers into his car. But he never had a plan or a timetable for his rapes, his murders, and his necrophiliac ways. Hmm. They ask him about his victims, Catherine. They have DNA evidence from his car that matches Catherine. Quote, I'd never seen Catherine before. We were ships in the night. Mm. I drove with her in the car for an inordinate amount of time, end quote. Wow. He's so proud. The cops basically tell him they know he has others. So he starts going through his murders one by one, giving them all these details that were not released to the public about each of these victims. And they know he's the killer. And yet he wanted them to know he was the killer. Again, he's very proud of his work. Yeah. Isn't it the case that a lot of serial killers, 
they actually want to be caught at some point. So they just start becoming very sloppy. I don't know that they want to be caught. They become uh, very confident. Yeah. They do want the limelight, which is why like even like the Zodiac Killer, yeah. you know, they leave, they send letters sure. and they do things. Sure. They want to play with them. I mean, hang on, because there's something interesting that Sean says in his police interviews that I'm, I'm going to get to. So it's, it's interesting that you even brought this okay. up. But when they take Sean down to police headquarters, they're like, we've got this guy dead to rights on three murders. Right. Sorry for the pun. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he confesses not to three, but eight. He tells the FBI when they question him that he was, quote, playing a game of chess with them as they investigated each and every crime scene, wow. end quote. He used television news to predict his next move and to judge whether or not he was, quote, winning, end quote. To quote Charlie Sheen, winning. winning. Yeah. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Quote, I was the chess master then. You're not going to beat me. My basic interest would be, okay, did they find it? Where did they find it? What was the condition of the body? End quote. Yeah. Now, do you think... That's the truth. It, was that why he was, was he really playing a chess game or is this something he just came up with once he got uh, nailed? I think he thinks he's playing a chess game. Okay. Yeah. He ain't playing no chess. Yeah. yeah. He's not even do playing checkers. He ain't playing with a full deck is what he's yeah, not playing with. Yeah. No, he's not playing chess. Okay. He's not playing All chess. Right. But he also tells the FBI of his cover-ups, quote, you're not going to dump a body if it's going to leave tracks. It's preferable to dump before it rains. It washes evidence off the victim and the evidence around the crime scene, mm. end quote. Jeez. So the police are getting all this good information and they're like, hold the phone. <laughs> Somebody call the public defender's office yeah. because we don't want anything to fall through the cracks. Yep. Like Sean saying, they never Mirandized mm. him. And therefore, his confessions aren't admissible in court. Right. Sean explains to the detectives that his urges are powerful and they get stronger the longer he goes without a successful mission. Jeez. Sean tells them, quote, I mean, there have been days where I would have dragged someone right off the street if there'd been someone available to me. I have literally grabbed them off the street before. <laughs> Sometimes I would follow a woman, not really to rape her. But just because I like the way she walks, literally, wow. end quote. And he is one of these bozos who uses the word literally <laughs> over and over, which is why I'm telling you, he's not a chess master. Yeah. He's not even playing checkers. He's not a member of Mensa. No. Sean just keeps flapping his gums. He won't shut up. In fact, they have, get this, 40 hours of confession tapes by Sean Gillis. Wow. 40 hours. Gee whiz. He had a captive audience. Yeah. He liked it a lot. He was the center of attention. When police ask him about his methods, he says, quote, there was nothing meticulous like that. Literally, it was pretty much slash, 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 dump and forget, end quote. Oh, wow. Police go to Sean's home. They're tearing it apart. Yeah. And they do the luminol tests and his kitchen lights up like the 4th of <laughs> July. You knew it would. Sure. They also find the 45 photographs of Donna Johnston and endless photos of other victims naked and in the back of his car. They also find his serial killer kit in the back of the car. Zip ties, hacksaws, bandsaws. Yeah. Wow. They do order a psych exam. Duh. <laughs> well, there's the obvious link. Yeah. Dr. Dorothy Lewis will later say that Sean Gillis is mentally insane, claiming that he has signs 
of a schizoid affective disorder. I think he's a narcissist too, yeah. but I'm not a psychiatrist. I just play one on this <laughs> podcast. I always say that. Yeah. Sean is charged with several counts of first and second degree murder. He takes a plea to escape the death penalty and is sentenced to serve three consecutive life sentences. And I saw an interview with one of the detectives who thought this was kind of ironic. It's okay to kill others, but he doesn't want yeah. to be killed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Funny enough, though, when he had his first preliminary hearing for the murder of Donna Bennett Johnston, where they have DNA that matches, it's, you know, it's a slam dunk. Sean pleads not guilty and not by reason of insanity. And this shocks everybody because just two days before, Sean had given an interview to the Baton Rouge Advocate where he confessed to killing eight women over 10 years. Yeah, but why, why should this not surprise us that he would— Well, it's yeah, true. I mean, the guy's nuts. It's true. And when he's asked about the victims, Sean tells the reporter, quote, the victims are already dead to me when I meet them, end quote. Wow. Yeah. It's just a piece of flesh. Because he's he wants the dead body. Killing them is a means to get to the kink that he wants, which is the dead body. Wow. Yeah. It'll be a full year before Terry knows the extent of what Sean did while they were together for 10 years. He'll be tried for each of these murders separately. On July 21st, 2008, Sean's trial begins. He is found guilty of the murders of Catherine Hall, Johnny Mae Williams, and Donna Bennett Johnston. He is sentenced to life in prison after the jury deadlocked in the penalty phase. The jurors, including the jury foreman, have since said when the first vote was taken, four jurors voted no on the death penalty. That included two jurors who said they absolutely would not vote for the death penalty for any reason, and the two who admitted they were, quote, wavering, end quote. They finally voted against the death penalty. Several of the jurors who favored death called the final vote immensely disappointing. Yeah. They wanted him to fry. Yeah. Sean is currently incarcerated at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola or the Alcatraz of the South. Oh, wow. It is the largest maximum security prison in the United States with 6,300 inmates. Well, and here's the thing, too. I mean, he's a little tiny guy, obviously. And you're putting him in a maximum security prison? How's he going to survive that? Or how has he survived that? Well, I'm going to tell okay. you. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> because there's so many inmates, this place is often called a gated community. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, the killer who was operating during the same time as Sean in Baton Rouge, Derek Todd Lee, yeah. the serial killer that Sean idolized, right. well, he too is at the Alcatraz <laughs> of the South. But Derek Todd Lee died of heart disease in 2016 while awaiting execution. He did get the death penalty. Gotcha. And as far as being a little guy in a big prison and a rapist and a rapist, he's basically by himself. It's not solitary confinement, but he's he is segregated from From everybody else. And I think he gets two hours a day of outdoor time. Jeez. But I'm pretty sure this is the prison, the Alcatraz of the South. I don't think it has uh, air conditioning. Yeah. And if you've ever been to Louisiana in the summer, whew, yeah, it's rough. It's a little steamy. That's rough. <laughs> but that is the story of Sean Gillis. That's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. Have you read any good books lately or have you listened to any good books? 
All of the Sex and Lies series books, as well as the Jane Doe series, are available on Audible and iTunes. Hotter than hell in half of Alabama, the Sex and Lies series begins with Sex, Lies, and Sweet Tea. There are nine books to listen to in that series alone. Left as a newborn to die in a dumpster, she has no name. Tossed from foster home to foster home, she has no family. With no known past, she's deemed a perfect fit for a task force Washington denies exists. A selective assassin for the United States government, Jane Doe tracks down known terrorists on domestic soil. The Jane Doe books have been called a bit military, a bit assassin, and a bit genius. Start the new year by listening to a good book by me, Chris Calvert, on Audible or iTunes. Or if you'd like to read, go to chriscalvert.com and download some free books. And thanks for being a listener of Hitch to Homicide. Wow, Sean, uh, you know, I think he should have gotten the death penalty. Yeah, well. And the reason I think he should have gotten the death penalty, it was because of the first victim, the 82-year-old. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's just. Wrong. Oh, on so many I levels. Mean, yeah, the other murders, yeah, were awful and terrible and, you know, not called for. Blah, but blah, a blah. helpless 82-year-old I woman? Mean, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. He didn't care. He didn't care. No. Not one little bit. And again, it wasn't about who those people were. It was just the body. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's. <laughs> that, that was a little heavy. Please, let's move on. Let's move on with a little bless your heart. All right, here's the first one, and I'm calling it Stop Clowning Around. All right. Wearing a disguise is great for concealing one's identity if one is going to commit a crime. True. Someone should have told Dennis Hawkins that in order for a disguise to work, however, it has to be somewhat believable. Okay. Hawkins apparently missed that memo as he attempted to rob a bank wearing clown pants with a oh. pair of fake breasts and a blonde wig. Not only did he fail to cover his face, which, you know, he still had a goatee and mustache, but the disguise also attracted attention and police easily apprehended him. What? Clown pants, fake breasts, <laughs> blonde wig? Yeah, he just wanted to blow. That's me on a Saturday night. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> that was good, honey. Don't have fake breasts. All right. <laughs> They're all mine. All right. Number two, it's all about appearances. Okay. Breaking the law requires a certain audacity. But Tony Vaughn, a 37-year-old San Francisco hairstylist, took this to a new level when he drove a stolen car to his own trial. Oops. <laughs> Vaughn faces charges for possessing a stolen $125,000 Porsche Carrera. Ooh. So maybe you thought, you know, no one would notice when he arrived at court with a stolen Lexus instead. <laughs> what? When Yorkshire puppies he'd left inside escaped through a window, the sheriff's deputies noticed and ran the license plate. Wait a second. This has everything. Luxury cars, Yorkies, uh, yep. somebody's going to court. Yep. Okay. He was charged with possession of a stolen car and computer, as well as animal cruelty. Yes. And that's the part that I like the best. <laughs> Don't leave that little dog in the car. No. no. Have, have you ever seen the picture of the dog that's in the car and it's got the, the sign outside and it's like, the air conditioner is on, <laughs> his favorite radio station is playing, 
He is fine. Yeah. I will be back in five minutes. I always thought that's funny because the dog's just like sitting there looking out the window. And that's like you know our dog Scotty. You know when we leave the house because we have a camera in the in the den, and I always turn on the Animal Planet for him. And turn the lights on so that way we can watch him when we're not at home. And he does. He looks for it. We're out to dinner. We're looking for where the dog is. I'm like, he's asleep. I'm right here across from you at the table. He's in his heated bed. Scotty's fine. All right. I'm sorry. I digress. I'm sorry. All right. Number three, the living dead burglar. Okay. That one's good for this case today. Keep going. Yeah. Now, there are times when playing dead might be a smart idea. In the animal world, the Virginia possum plays dead to avoid predators, and some fish feign death to attract their prey. Playing possum. My mom always said that. Absolutely. But when a 23-year-old man broke into a Spanish funeral home in March of 2008, he learned it isn't the most successful strategy in the human world. When police arrived to investigate the reported break-in, this man tried to fool them by lying on a table in a glass chamber used for wakes. Police were tipped off when they noticed that, for a corpse, he was awfully alive, breathing and everything. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, pal. Oh, man. Listen, I mm, I went, ooh. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. No. Number four, last but certainly not least, say cheese and, oh, your name too. Okay. It's only polite to answer the phone. It could be someone important, like the company that monitors the alarm you just tripped. Oops. <laughs> On the night of his birthday, 47-year-old Christopher Cron broke into the Junkanoo Bar on Fort Myers Beach to steal a bottle of Grand Marnier. At least he had some taste. Right? Okay. He's in Fort Myers. Yeah. He's in Florida. Okay. When, he, when the alarm company called, he not only answered the phone, but also gave his full name. Because he hadn't hidden his face either, police were able to identify and arrest him the next day based on the video surveillance of the break-in. Busted. So he's just there <laughs> drinking behind the bar. Hey, what's yeah. happening? Answering the, yeah. Yeah, answering the phone, okay. giving his name. Must have been a silent alarm, uh, you think? Uh, Usually knows? alarms are loud because they want to scare you off. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> who knows? Bless his heart. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs a blessing, go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's pull down menu. You can also suggest a case while you're there. Yeah, do it. We're so glad you joined us again this week. That's my amazing husband out there. That's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.